We got there. The second we got out of the car, the rocket sirens went off. We had to run straight to the bomb shelter. Uh, that happened multiple times while we were there. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. You're probably familiar with the expression, the fog of war. It's the uncertainty in situational awareness experienced by participants in military operations during a war or conflict. But that fog of war projects outward to those who are observing what is going on. Information, the reliability of which is always uncertain and often tinged by the propagandistic efforts of the belligerents in the fight, flies at a rapid pace, especially in our digital online world. That's certainly been true in the wake of the October 7th terrorist attacks in Israel and of the Israel-Hamas war that has followed in the weeks after it. It's at times like these when we need a good journalism that tells the stories of those experiencing the conflict. Mike Cosper, the director of podcasting for Christianity Today, wanted to see what was happening in Israel for himself and wanted to tell those stories from a Christian perspective and for a Christian audience. So he went to Israel. His reports will make up a special podcast series that will appear in the podcast feed for Christianity Today's roundtable podcast, The Bulletin. Today, I talk with Mike Cosper about his visit to Israel and the West Bank, the people he talked to, the stories he heard, and the impression that this experience and those conversations left on him. Mike Cosper serves as the director of podcasting for Christianity Today, where he hosts the weekly roundtable podcast, The Bulletin. In 2021, he produced and hosted The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, a serialized podcast telling the story of a Seattle megachurch's stunning success and collapse. His podcast series on his visit to Israel, which we'll be discussing today, will appear in the Bulletin's podcast feed from Christianity Today, and a link to that podcast feed will be in the show notes for this episode. He is the author of several books, including Faith Among the Faithless, Learning from Esther, How to Live in a World Gone Mad, Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World, The Stories We Tell, How TV and Movies Long for and Echo the Truth, and Rhythms of Grace, How the Church's Worship Tells the Story of the Gospel. Mike lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife and their two daughters. You can follow him on X, formerly Twitter, at at Mike Cosper. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Mike Cosper, welcome to Acton Line. Hey, thanks for having me. So... So let's start here. When tell us uh, the time frame in which you were in Israel, mm-hmm. and why did you want to go? Yeah, so I went about five weeks after the attack. I was there, uh, I believe it was the thirteenth through the seventeenth of November, and we. Th- there were several reasons that I wanted to go. Um, one was the attacks had happened, and and it broke my heart for the Israelis that I knew. Uh, for my Jewish friends here in the states, and w- what I've what I've said many times is like October seventh was a shock. October eighth was almost more of a shock to kind of see how quickly the world pivoted right back to the political polarization around it, the Israel Palestine conflict, to the ideological talking points about settler colonialism, and you know all of these things that we've heard so much since then. Um, and then I think the thing that was was even more vivid at the time. And I, I don't think it's over, but it's. It, I think it's, we're going to see cycles of it. But what was really vivid at the time was was you were just starting to see kind of the denialism. Oh, it wasn't as bad as the Israelis are saying. These attacks didn't, you know, no one was raped. No children were beheaded. You know, some of all that kind of stuff was 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 being talked about. And I just thought, man, this is one of these moments where history will judge us for how we respond 
to this. God will judge us for how we respond to this one thing, but I mean, history is going to judge us for it as well. And and I remember someone saying, people need to see this. People need to see what what took place um, and in order to, to tell the story and to tell it well. Uh, and so we had already decided on the bulletin to do some special coverage of the issue. Um, when we when we first talked about doing the special coverage, my our, our CEO said to me, he goes, hey, do you want to go? And I was like, are you, are you crazy? There's a war going on. And then about three weeks later, it came up again and someone said, look, I think there'd be an opportunity for you to go there as a Christian to tell this story to Christians. Uh, would you be interested? And, and at that point, I was really compelled to go. That last point you made as you know, going as a Christian to tell the story to Christians, un- unpack that more. What do you think was missing in the coverage that you saw of what was happening in that conflict from a, from a Christian perspective and for a Christian audience? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for one thing, I think, um, you know, I grew up, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, so I grew up sitting in big Southern Baptist churches, listening to sermons about how, you know, 19, 1948, 1949 were, uh, they, they line up perfectly with these things that happened in the book of Revelation, and if you look at Gorbachev's forehead, that birthmark is actually the mark of the beast. And it was all like the end of the world was coming and Israel was right at the heart and right at the center of it. And then about 10 years later, the Left Behind books came out and there was this incredible obsession around that 81 million books uh, in, in the Left Left Behind series were sold. Um, and so the church had a frenzy of this stuff when I was when I was a kid. And then in my 20s, uh, I was a pastor in my when I was in my 20s. And in my 20s, it was like the whole conversation about eschatology, Jews, Israel, all of that went absolutely silent. And and I genuinely think to some extent it went silent because um, because Christians like me were taking over uh, as leaders in the church, and we were just kind of embarrassed by what we some of what we had grown up with, some of the sort of more fantastical, uh, entertaining versions of it. And so we didn't talk about it. And so part of what I found remarkable um, in in Christian responses to October 7th has been, there's been a lot that's just been sort of straight party line stuff that's very predictable. Um, but but what there hasn't been a lot of is, well, what are the theological questions that emerge? What do we what do we think about? I mean, this is our this is our holy land as well. This is our holy city. Jerusalem is is where the most important things that have ever happened in human history took place. Um, and I saw a lot of Christians who didn't know how to talk about it, who were intrigued, curious, um, but but didn't understand how to do it. There wasn't a lot of theological conversation going on around it. And then there was just a massive amount of ignorance around the history of Israel and Palestine um, that that allowed people to kind of go, well, it's just really complicated. I just feel like, who am I to judge? And to me, like, who am I to judge is the great sin of the 20th century. Uh, I, I don't want it to be the great sin of the 21st century especially around an issue like anti-Semitism and, and the genocide of Jews. Where did you go in Israel? And, and I mean, we'll start getting into it here. What, what did you see? What did you hear? Who did you talk to? Yeah, man. I mean, it was, we had an incredible opportunity to, to talk to people. So we were, we were all over the place. Um, we spent most of our time in Jerusalem, uh, but we were also in Tel Aviv. Uh, we went into the Gaza Envelope to Ashkelon, to Starot, to Kafar Aza, which is one of the kibbutz, uh, which is a, a kibbutz that was, uh, you know, one of the one of the more severely hit um, communities on October the seventh. Uh, we also went to the West Bank. Um, we met with Palestinian Christians. We met with uh, we met with Christians on both sides of the border. Um, we, we we went and talked to mountaintop settlers who are uh you know building settlements in some of the most contested areas of the west bank and you know literally he i mean I, this is on tape like literally he's introducing me to his family and he says you know this is my son he's probably the messiah you know and um and and then we talked to uh you know we talked to Mustafa Abu Sway who's a member of the waqf and one of the more notable uh uh scholars of islam in the world uh, got his perspective on it, uh, and then just got a variety of a variety of Jewish and Israeli perspectives on the war. Everything from sort of the far left wing people like Yariv Oppenheimer, who was one of the you know one time was the director of Peace Now and and one of the primary advocates of a two state solution, to 
you know, nationalist intellectuals like Yoram Hazoni to quite controversial figures like um, uh, Yehuda Glick, who uh, Yehuda Glick is uh, one of the people who's been leading the movement, leading Jews onto the Temple Mount to pray in public over the last number of years, which has led to no small amount of controversy. He's he's con- he's uh, uh, he's he's connected to that same movement with Itamar Ben Gavir, who we've we've heard a lot about in the last few weeks. One of these right wing figures in Israel. So the idea was like, let's hear all of these stories. And for me, I mean, as a you know, I'm I'm primarily a religion journalism a religion journalist. So for me, this is a story where I'm trying to go. What, what's the desire story here? What does everybody want, right? Like Jesus' question that he always asks, like, what do you want? What does everybody want? And how do these things intersect? How do these intersect with the Christian vision for for flourishing and for um, uh, a better world? And uh, and how do we begin to make judgments based on those things? Yeah, that's a big question. So you have, uh, you have the intersection of three different major faith traditions in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all in the place where this is the origin of all of it. And you have these very modern but historically informed uh, national political issues of the states that exist there, the borderlines that exist between them. What did you, from what you heard, you know, tr- try to answer that question for us. What do people want? Um, both from, you know, again, on both dimensions there, there's the uh, the religion element of it, but there's also the kind of political in this world, in this period of time, what do people want? And how reconcilable do you think those things are? I mean, I think one of the most discouraging elements of it right now is how far off reconciliation sounds. Um, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, the, the Uriv Oppenheimer w- interview is, is one of the, I think one of the more important conversations that we had while we were there, because there's a, there's a sense of brokenheartedness on his part. This is someone who wants, he wants the Palestinians to have a state. He wants them to have self-determination and liberty, and he has devoted his life to that cause. Um, had a similar moment, a really interesting moment. This is on the very first episode that will that will air. What a similar moment that was really stark on uh, at Kafar Aza. We we took sort of the official IDF tour there, and they they do their thing and tell their stories, and it's all very it's it's kind of weird. It's kind of programmatic. It's like it's like they're you know it's like being on a historical tour of Williamsburg, but history is only six weeks old, and it's the most violent, horrifying thing you've ever heard in your life. It's a really strange experience to walk through there. And as we were getting ready to leave, uh, we heard this. I hear this dog bark, and I turn around, and there's a dog coming out of somebody's house. And this this 22 year old kid walks out smoking a cigarette, and uh, it turned out he lived there, and and he was he's a survivor of the seventh, and and we interviewed him, and he was talking about the attacks, and like one of the things he said is he said uh, he said, look, my family moved here. And and I've lived here my entire life because we wanted peace. We we hired Palestinians. They worked here. Like they were our friends. We thought they were our friends. Like these were, we wanted all of this. And I said, well, I said, what do you want now? <laughs> he essentially said, he essentially said, I want an ocean view now. He said, he said, we're done. The, like Israel needs to be allowed to win this war because we've done everything we have to do. And so to hear the to hear the far left on Israel, and there was actually some. I, I, I just before we got on here, I. Saw somebody um, posting on X about this that there's some there's some new polling data that shows this that basically like the co- the two state cause and sort of the left cause uh, inside Israel right now is gone. Um, there's no interest in it whatsoever. Um, so I think that's one of the things that's the most most sort of set heartbreaking and discouraging about all of this. Like there's there's a legendary story that that when um, uh, when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in the 1990s, that Arafat turned to somebody and said, they didn't just kill Rabin, they killed the peace process, you know? And um, I feel like this is a this is sort of a mirror to that moment, that Hamas, by um, by doing what they did, uh, have have evaporated the appetite for a peace process on on the Israeli left. Uh, and, and the left was ascendant right now. Like, this was... 
with with everything that was happening before October seventh, with the you know there was all this controversy around judicial reform and do we get a, do we make a constitution? Do we not make a constitution? The left was ascendant, and um, so I I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to talk about like exactly what 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 they want now, other than they want to go back home. They want to go back to Kafar Aza. They want to go back to Sterot. They want to go back to their communities and rebuild and know that this is never going to happen again. And that's kind of the covenant. That's like kind of the covenant the state makes with its people that's broken right now. And that's what the Israelis are are trying to rebuild. I think on the Palestinian side, it's an incredibly complicated question because on the one hand, they're broadcasting what they want. Hamas is telling you exactly what they want. They want October 7th over and over and over again until Palestine is free of Jews from the river to the sea. Um, there, there are, I think, a lot of moderate Palestinians. Um, but even in terms of like, what are they able to say on the record about what they want, about what comes next, what would happen to people who advocate for peace, um, uh, what comes after the PA, what comes after Mahmoud Abbas dies. There's so much uncertainty around all of that. It's hard to get a very clear picture uh, from 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 where things stand right now. What did you hear from Christians in the region who, you know, I'm, I'm I'm wary of trying to project my own imagination of what they might be thinking onto them, but you, you, I, I could envision it as feeling kind of like this, you know, a, a bystander in a very odd way that, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily want to describe this as a war of one religion against the other. There are actors who are, you know, certainly on the Hamas side claiming religious motivation, and, and I think that's pretty undeniable. Um, but what is the perspective of, of Christians in the region who in this in one sense are not really a party to this conflict, but they are certainly in the crossfire just by virtue of being in the region? Yeah. Yeah, so there's definitely an, an ethnic divide, including among Christians. Um, so so there's there's a there's a fairly sizable messianic community in Israel um, that is very much it very very much aligned with uh, with with their Jewish neighbors. Um, what's interesting right now is, you know, Israeli Arabs are. I would say Israeli Arabs are divided in a, in a way that is new in Israel's history, and that's primarily because of the leadership of Mansour Abbas. He's a member of the Knesset. He's a um, uh, an Arab political leader. Uh, he's an Islamist. I mean, he is a hardcore right wing Islamist, but he's not a milit- He's not a jihadist. He's not a militant Islamist. So, so he believes the world is you know. Allah is moving the world towards one day everyone's going to be a Muslim and there will be one big caliphate. He's just not in a hurry. <laughs> and so his belief is that uh, that for whatever reason, you know, God's put Israel on the planet to do what it's doing and, and be what it is, and that that he wants peace with his Jewish neighbors. Um, and so there's a, there's a coalition that oddly is sort of the right-wing um, uh, Islamic Arab co- coalition inside Israel that is like I'm in. I'm like I. I met with a a Bedouin woman, um, who kind of fits into this world a bit, and she's like, I am. I'm a Muslim, uh, and I'm an Israeli. Like she identified, I am an Israeli, um, and she, you know, she wants the war. Uh, she wants the war to end quickly, but she wants peace. She wants Hamas defeated, and I think there's a there's a there's a consensus around that, and at a certain element of it. Interestingly, though the more sort of secular nationalist Palestinian coalition inside Israel as well would be more aligned with like the secular national Palestinian coalition inside the territories. But again, then you get into, then you get into this complication of you've got the, you've got sort of the Hamas people, you've got the Fatah people, and you've got the Palestinian Christians. Um, They're all in, in a, in a bit of a spectrum and they all have different pressures and incentives to, to kind of believe what they believe and say what they believe. So, so for example, we talked to, you'll hear this on the show. We talked to uh, someone like a Mitri Rahab. Mitri is one of the leading uh, Christian theologians in uh, Palestine. He's in, he's in Bethlehem. He's the president of a college there. He was the pastor of the evangelical Lutheran church in Bethlehem for a long time. And Mitri 
uh, just pu- you know before October seventh, published a book about uh, sort of a, a Palestinian liberation theology, viewing Israel as a settler colonial state, and you know all of that ideology kind of baked into the the Christian the Christian theology, Christian perspective. Um, there are there are a lot of people that are more moderate than that, but if you look at the main line in the United States, who's who's the primary theological influence for them on this conflict? It would be Mitri. And we talked to him and kind of got into it. Um, we talked to other evangelicals that I think, like I said, are are, are more moderate and and are are more interested in in peace and, and in two states. And in, for them, they they really say this is a moment for Israel to empower the PA to take Gaza back and to to you know empower them so they can actually achieve peace inside their own inside their own states. Um, and then we talked to some evangelicals, um, uh, or so, sorry, we talked to some Palestinian Christians who are kind of like trying to keep their heads down and care for their communities. And those conversations were fascinating because they're looking at this war and they're going, we understand why there's a war going on right now, but our people are dying and our hearts are breaking. And it's a heartbreaking story to hear. You you, you mentioned the guy said, you know, he's he's an Islamist, but he's not in a hurry. And this this may be a bit of a digression, but I I, I think about I think about that general concept a lot with at least with application to politics here in the United States. That I think I've talked about this with David Bonson on this podcast on at least a couple occasions. That this this loss of an idea of eschatology and a, a thought of what comes after this existence informs in my mind so much of the hurriedness that you see in the way people are acting these days that because they've lost faith um, and as many have in uh, a hereafter you know it's it's the same kind of mentality that in its worst forms informs the well you know it doesn't matter in that sense if you kill a few million people to achieve utopia here it's it's necessary you only think about what'll happen in your lifetime so i guess in a sense it's refreshing to hear somebody with a perspective of you know not being in a hurry and not thinking they need to bring about all of this stuff as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and you heard that as well when you talked to so so another person that I interviewed for the the show that that you'll hear um, is is involved with uh, what what they've referred to as the Red Heifer Project. Have you heard of this? I have not. <laughs> so this is fascinating, right? Um, so. So Yehuda Glick, who I mentioned earlier, who you know has led these groups onto the Temple Mount to pray for, for a number of years, he survived an, an assassination attempt a few years ago. He's he's connected to this as well. There's an organization called the Temple Foundation that has basically spent you know many years now rebuilding all the elements of the temple, reweaving the the garments for the priests and building all the right vessels and all this kind of stuff. And then um, and then. A few years ago, somebody started this thing called the Red Heifer Project. So when the Messiah comes, according to according to Jewish tradition, when when the, the when the Messiah comes, they will have to do a red heifer ceremony uh, before they can go back to the Temple Mount. So this guy ends up buying a property in East Jerusalem that's on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Temple Mount and realizes that this property would meet the requirements in the scriptures for ho- holding the red heifer ceremony. So you have to find a perfect red heifer with with no black or white hairs on it, just red hairs, and it has to be a certain age, and then they can sacrifice it, burn it to ashes, and then the priests can, they mix it with water, and the priests can drink the, the water, and then they can ascend the temple mount and, and cleanse it and sanctify it and rebuild the temple. So this is a big thing that they've been waiting for. So this guy realizes he owns this property, and so he starts talking to people, and they're like, yeah, well, you're going to have to find the red heifers, right? Like, where are you going to get perfect red heifers, which is harder than it sounds. <laughs> you don't have a good so, red heifer guy? Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't have a red heifer guy. So so this is where it gets so such an interesting religion story, because he ends up partnering with a dispensational evangelical Christian in Texas who does, you know, puts word out, I guess there's like farmer publications, right? Um, saying, I need perfect red heifers. And if there are candidates, we'll buy them for you at, from you at a premium and figure out how we get them to Israel after that. And it's been like a multi-year project. Today, there are five 
perfect red heifers that were flown over special uh, from from the states. And uh, like there was all kinds of craziness that went into like like so when you when you when a when a heifer is is born uh, in the states you have to tag their ear, but if you tag their ear they're no longer perfect, so it wouldn't they wouldn't meet the requirements. So they had to go figure out like how do we get around that? Like what are, what are the things we have to do for that? Um, uh, you're not allowed to ship uh, livestock in, but you can fly a pet in. So so they were flown in as pets. <laughs> And and so now in in Shiloh in in the Judean hills, uh, or maybe it's in Samaria, I can't remember. Um, but in Shiloh, there is a uh, the Red Heifer Foundation. These five heifers, they're about two months away from being of age where they would be ready, and um, uh, you can go see the heifers. And then they've got like a genetics facility, breeding facility that they've built there, so that they can keep a supply of them. And I'm like, so is the ex like, do you think this is going to happen in your lifetime? And he's like, I don't know. I have no idea. It could be in my lifetime. I took, you know, I think he said, he goes, it was 387 years from the time we, you know, Jews first uh, uh, crossed the Jordan until they built the the first temple. So we could have another 340 something years before we get there. But in any case, it, the, when when the Messiah comes, we'll be ready. That's that's the main, that's the main thing. Uh so wow. yeah, wow. fascinating. Had you been to Israel before this trip? Yeah, yeah, a few times over the years. What was what was different to you? What was obviously different to you oh, this man. trip from the previous ones you'd been on? So our first morning there, uh, we we stayed in Jerusalem because it was kind of central. And our first morning there, we had a couple hours uh, before our first interview. And decided to walk over to the old city. And I, I'm a big fan. It's a weird way to put it, but uh, one of my favorite places to go in in Jerusalem is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And for those who've never been there before, you got to understand this. So this is the church that holds. It's a, it's a massive church, and it's it's understood to be the historic location of both the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it is a weird place. Like it is a wonderfully strange place. It is, um, uh, it's the home of like multiple denominations, Orthodox, Catholic, um, and uh, yeah, and 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 so you've got sort of the the a shrine of the resurrection. You have this thing called the Atticule, which is where the tomb was that was dug out in the third century, and um, um, and there's there's a shrine in there. And normally you go to this. Place. And from the moment the doors open until they close at night, it's just wall-to-wall people. And, you know, there, there's a there's a certain sense of kind of chaos to it. It's not user-friendly. Um, uh, it's labyrinthine because it's sort of been built and knocked down and rebuilt and and added to. And anyway, I, I but I always love going. I, I love the the kind of circus of people that that come to it, uh, the mix of people who are there with with a deep sense of devotion and then the people who are there with selfie sticks and, um, and all of that. Anyway, we go and I didn't have any real expectations about what we would see when we got there, but the old city was empty. I mean, empty. We saw a handful of people on the way to the church and then we get to the church of the Holy Sepulcher and there's one or two people in there wandering around. Um, uh, mostly, mostly locals, mostly you know, the, some of the priests who were there. Um, and I just, I walked into the shrine of the resurrection and had 20 minutes, 25 minutes to myself inside the shrine of the resurrection. Um, and I'm, that'll be a memory I keep for the rest of my life. I mean, nothing like it. Um, Jerusalem had that feeling. The old city had, had that feeling the entire time we were there. It was, it was, it was empty. It was haunted. We went to the Western Wall on Friday at Shabbat, which is normally when it's kind of the busiest. And and it was there were a lot of people, but maybe a tenth of what there normally is uh, on a Friday night. Um, there's this sense in the air that everyone's holding their breath, wondering what's going to come next. Is it the war in the north? Is something bad going to happen in the West Bank? Is East Jerusalem going to explode with riots? Um is is Iran going to get involved? Is Jordan going to get involved? Um, it's it's an incredibly 
it's like it's like everyone's holding their breath and everyone is grieved. And I would say this is true on on both sides of the the conflict. There's there's you know outside of Hamas, of course, there's a tremendous amount of grief about the the war, the suffering, the loss, the death. You you can't avoid it. These are these are small countries, you know. I mean, this is like this is like New York City. Um, basically having a having having violence that's taken thousands of lives over the past two months and and I think we can play you know play, place the moral responsibility squarely on Hamas um, for that for that loss of life and for that tragedy no doubt um, but it leads to just a tremendous amount of grief for everyone you had mentioned the internal, political issues that preceded the October 7th attack in Israel. For the people you talked to, from you know, what was the feeling that was in the air, what, what was the sense of, of internal politics right now? Which, on, on one hand, you know, it kind of seems like, you know, how much are you going to focus on internal politics when there's a war like this going on? But, of course, internal politics is going to inform not just the way that the war is fought, but what is going to come next. Was there a sense that, uh, you know, the, the, the focus on something that now seems so trivial, like judicial reforms, that they taken their eye off the ball? Um, both, what, what's the perception of the political leadership there right now? I have a hard time believing that, that BB lasts more than a few hours after the end of the war in office. Um, and I also have a hard time believing that there's any any form, any any form of a coalition that could come together that could return him to power after this. The disgust for for his leadership, for the the leadership of the the intelligence community, the military community, all of that, it's it's kind of through the roof. And and the expectation of everyone, right and left, was that as soon as as soon as the the war cabinet feels uh, like like their their primary objectives have been achieved, you're going to see mass resignations and from the from the heads of all of those departments. Um, but again, I mean, like I mentioned that that polling data that that showed up today, this in in a lot of ways this decimates the left too, because there's a lot of rage at the left. Uh, you know, here's the here's the the clearest indicator that that the world has changed. I saw a photo of somebody um, that somebody posted from uh, a, the kibbutz in in Beiri, I think it was, um, uh, which is they they suffered some of the attacks on October. They said suffered significantly from the attacks of October seventh, deaths and and kidnapping. And and this is a you know these kibbutzim are like the heart of progressive Israel, and um, uh, very often very secular, very left wing. Um, these were the people that were trying to make peace with the Palestinians and and all of this. And someone had posted a sign on the front door of their on the front porch of their home in in this kibbutz that said, "Remember Amalek," which is a reference to the Book of Deuteronomy. Amalek being this tribe that attacked the uh, the Israelites from behind on their way from Egypt, and it, they attacked the, the 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 women and the children and the elderly and all of this. And it was a it's a death cult, and they that that the Amalekites. Um, Kind of haunt Israel all through the Hebrew Bible. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu made a reference to them short, you know, shortly after the war began, and and likening Hamas to this. The fact that you're seeing that in some of the most le- that kind of talk in the most left wing spaces in in Israel, it just indicates that everything's different now. And I don't know that anyone quite knows what comes next because all all people wanted to talk about was we have we have business to take care of in Gaza. And we'll figure out what comes next after that. What was their view, uh, if if any, of the reaction to all of this from around the world or the United States in particular? You, you mentioned, and I had a rather similar feeling that I I, I kind of hate this that there's just not a lot that really shocks me anymore. You know, there's all kinds of awful things can happen in this world, and and even just within the more reasonable confines of American political life. And and sadly, not a lot of it shocks me anymore. I have to confess to being shocked by how quickly 
those kinds of uh, marches and protests that were, by, by my view, pretty unambiguously taking Hamas's side in this. I, I, I want to be clear that there are certainly people in that crowd, and this is part, part of a problem of protest in a modern age. I can trace this even back to uh, the 2000s and the war in Iraq and the, the problem that I knew a lot of my libertarian friends had, which is the, yeah, I was opposed to the war in Iraq, but you're out there with people who are holding signs that say no nuclear power, and it's like, can, can we focus on one issue, please? Um, so th there are people who I think are, are caught up in this and, and are well-meaning and, and are not actually taking Hamas aside. But, but clearly there were people who were taking that view. What is their view on what is happening elsewhere in the world in reaction to what happened on October 7th and, and the war in the aftermath of it? Well, I, one of the things that was really consistent was how many, um, how many Israelis said, you know, it just shows people don't know who we are. Right, like when you refer to us as, I mean, I sat with a, I sat with a guy at one point who said, you know, you people keep referring to us as a European settler colonial state. Right? He's like, my dad is came here from Yemen, fled with the clothes on his back and lost everything. My mom came here from Ethiopia, same thing. Um, he's like, I don't. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like we're we're a nation of refugees. Everywhere else in the world wanted to kill us. This is the only place we had left to be safe. You keep telling us go home. Where's my home? You know, they burned my home to the ground. They burned my parents' homes to the ground. Um, so you heard a lot of that. I mean, I, I also had a, a really interesting conversation with a woman who uh, works with a women's Zionist organization and had been involved in sort of lobbying the UN to recognize. The, the sexual crimes against women on October the 7th. And um, and I asked her, I, I, I sort of asked her this open-ended question to say, why do you think, why do you think the world has had a hard time acknowledging uh, what happened and, and acknowledging what happened to, uh, on the 7th and particularly what happened, what happened to women? And it was so interesting because she labored, she labored to answer it because she didn't want to just say, well, it's just anti-Semitism. And so she kind of talked around it and we came, I came back to it and I said, I said, I feel like, I feel like you're talking around this, you know, I, I, I said, I, and I kind of think I understand why. And she goes, yeah, she goes, I am talking around it because I don't want to believe that's what the world really is. I don't want to believe that's true for me. I don't want to believe that's true for my daughter. Um, I don't want to think that's, that's why things are happening the way that they are. So I think there's a lot of sort of, you know, Israelis generally feel like people have no clue what our story is and who we really are. Um, and there's also a sense of, because, because again, like young Israelis, like the vast majority of sort of Israelis under 50, um, second generation, you know, citizens or first and second generation citizens, like these are, these are uh, largely more progressive people that would more identify with, with the left. Um they're looking at the world going, we feel like we feel like you are betraying us because we share so many of your values. We share liberal values. We share pluralistic values. We share, we, we, you know, we we want the world to be a, a libertine kind of place. And, and Israel is an incredibly libertine place in a lot of ways. Maybe the most significant comment that I heard was from somebody who was actually an American, but he made a comment. He said, he said, the hard thing for me right now is, is that I just have to acknowledge to myself that my mother was right. Um, he's, he's in higher ed, uh, kind of an elite university. And he said, he said, I'm having to acknowledge my mother was right when she told me when I got my PhD, um, don't lose your, uh, don't, don't ever, don't ever forget where you came from because, um, these people are never going to fully accept you for who you are. And there's going to come a time where they, where they turn on you. Um, he said, I, I thought that was just old cynicism. I understood why she said it, but I, I thought, you know, I, I don't want to embrace that kind of cynicism. And now here I am, I'm, you know, 62 years old and having to realize she was right the whole time. Tell me about the visit you made to the kibbutz. Um, I've heard, I've heard interviews with other people who have visited there and, and talked about the, what they saw, uh, and how harrowing that experience was. What, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, so these these kibbutzim, they're um, 
they're little like they they were built to be these little socialist utopias, right? So everybody lives in a in a tiny four hundred square foot cinder block house. Um, everything's very modest. Everything's very intimate. You have very close proximity to your neighbors, um, and um, you know, and everything everything's walkable. I mean, again, just just kind of kind of socialist utopia. Um, we got there the second we got out of the car. The rocket sirens went off. We had to run straight to the bomb shelter. Uh, that happened multiple times while we were there. And there was, you know, there was this interesting contrast between the space itself. The space tells you a story that is, that's gutting because these homes are destroyed. Um, every home you look at is pockmarked with, with bullet holes. You can tell on most of the homes where the bomb shelter was. Uh, because the terrorists figured that out and then went outside the house. And and when they could, they would attempt to get to the bomb shelter from the outside with rocket-propelled grenades and, you know, blast a hole big enough in the side of the in the side of the bomb shelter to either throw grenades inside or to push stuff inside so that they could light fires, um, Molotov cocktails or whatever that whatever it was they had to to light the fires. Um, and then most of the, you know. Many of the homes, probably the majority of the homes, are are essentially burned out from the middle because once they, once they either killed everyone inside or ran them off or kidnapped them or whatever, um, uh, or, or or had just determined that they weren't going to be able to get to the people, um, they would then drag old tires into the middle of the house, soak them with kerosene and light it on fire, and you know destroy these destroy these homes. So you know it was interesting. I mean it was it was, it was funny. I I um um I I talked to Yossi Klein Halevi, who's a um an intellectual um uh, Israeli journalist, writer, uh, brilliant guy. And and I was telling him about this experience. I said, you know, one of the things that was so odd is that the space has this incredible power that it speaks to you with. And then you're on this official IDF tour. <laughs> And you've got this guy who, who looks like a GI Joe character, like he's like you know six two, and he's just covered in, you know, uh, protective gear and weapons and all the rest of it. And he's trying to tell this emotional story of what happened that day, and you tell it in an emotive, emotional way. And it just, I mean, it's 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 a weird thing to kind of say, but it just didn't work. Like, like this the story the story is compelling, but there was something about him telling it. He's not a storyteller. Like it just the whole thing just felt kind of weird and it felt like you, you almost felt the sense of like this feels almost prop I mean feel it is in a sense almost propagandistic. Like this is the PR of the IDF, making sure that anybody that comes here gets the the heavy duty stuff. And I totally understand why they do it that way. But it was very disillusioning and disorienting in a, in a lot of ways too, because you 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 felt this tension and you heard the artillery going off three miles away at the, the Gaza border. Um, but then like, like, you know, like I mentioned, we, 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 while we were there, we, we bump into this kid who tells us his story and he's just chain smoking cigarettes and his dog is running around and, um, and, and that humanized it in a totally different, in a totally different way. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget walking through there. I'll never forget standing there looking at the house where, you know, this, this girl who, who was on the news every single day named Abigail Adan, who was three years old. Her parents were murdered. Um, and then she escaped and went, was rescued by her neighbors. And then with her neighbors was kidnapped to, um, uh, kidnapped to Gaza for six, eight, six, seven weeks, something like that. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll never forget seeing, seeing those spaces and seeing that loss of life and, and, and also just feeling that there's just something surreal about, about war and about the things that, you know, because I, I think a lot about the IDF having to give these tours. You know, you've seen other uh, – Elon Musk was taken there and Chris Christie was taken there and these different things. Like they have to give these tours and tell this story because so, they're, they're, they're part of their mission right now is to just continually remind people this really happened. <laughs> it was really horrible and that's why we're doing what we're doing. And um, it's a strange, it, it's a strange job. What was your experience in the West Bank? Yeah, so we we came to the West Bank the day after uh, there was a terror attack at the at the checkpoint, um, and so the day we were scheduled to go over, the IDF blocked all the roads, and so we had to 
literally we had to park at the park at the border and then we we hitchhiked from the border I, you know one of these things that i i feel like in hindsight hitchhiking with a with a stranger on the west bank and the back of a white pickup truck was probably not the best choice that i've ever made in my life um but uh nonetheless he was you know incredibly kind and got us got us to where we belonged um but yeah i mean we we spent the day there and again it's just it's similar to the old city it's a ghost town everything's closed the city we were in bethlehem um because because the day we were over there there were there were bombings in janine um there were attacks in ramallah i mean everything was a mess at the time so we spent the day in in bethlehem um we interviewed you know three or four people and you again you you feel this tension you feel this pressure of things could explode at any minute why don't we close with two final questions here first of all what if anything was really surprising to you i mean you're going into a war zone i i imagine there's a lot of uncertainty in that but you know, were, were there any preconceptions or, or things that you thought you had a good understanding of that were shaken or changed by the experience that you had there? Yeah, I mean, one story we'll tell on the podcast is about a, a hospital in Ashkelon. Um, and this was a um, this was the hospital where, on October the seventh, quite a few uh, significant number of the the victims of the attacks were taken. Um, for for treatment um since october the 7th and I, I don't know what the number is now but when when we were there five weeks afterward it had been hit with rockets four times um from that you know just just since the october october 7th attacks and um being there i mean this was what was wild was we 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 sit with the hospital director and and she tells the story of the 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 seventh and the attacks and and you know gave us kind of a tour and 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 showed us where that some of the things that they had already rebuilt they've moved the entire hospital underground which a lot of the hospitals on the borders have this you know have basically built these you know two story underground bunkers where you can take a four story hospital and kind of cram everybody together and move everything underground so that it's safe so we toured all that and and um and then we toured a, a wing of the hospital that had been hit a couple of weeks before we came and 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 it was it was one of these surreal moments. We we walk through there and talking about the damage. You know, people often kind of make jokes about um, how good Iron Dome is and how crappy these rockets are, and that are that are these sort of makeshift things out of PVC pipes and you know lawnmower engines. And um, you go and see the damage when one gets through, and it it sort of humbles that kind of talk because it's it's devastating what this thing did. It just you know. The, the wing that it hit was an occupational therapy wing that is at, where outpatient treatment for autistic kids come. And fortunately, when it hit, the, the wing was closed. There was nobody there. Nobody got hurt. And and that was fine. But if, that, if there had been anybody in there, the damage could have been unspeakable. Um, we walk out, and we're walking across the parking lot. And uh, all of a sudden, the rocket sirens go off. And... Um, you know, uh, the the guy who was kind of our fixer, he and I look at each other, and I had a photographer who was there with me. He was taking pictures for some of the stuff we're going to do with CT. And we all, like, we're looking around. We're in the middle of a parking lot. We have no idea where to go. And so, you know, we had been told if if there's no shelter, you just basically, basically go run and press your back up against the nearest building. It's the safest thing you can do. And so we're standing there, and we all pull our phones out, and uh, – you can't see it, but you can hear, you know, on the on the audio that we got, um, you can hear Iron Dome, you know, intercept the rockets that had, had come in over the air. So I say that to say um, getting a taste of normal in Ashkelon, because this is normal for them, the, the, you know, the, the folks who live on the Gaza envelope deal with rocket attacks on a pretty consistent basis and, and have for years and years and years, makes you go, wow. I'm glad I saw that, and I sure never see it. Need to see it again. Final question for you, Mike. As a good journalist, I know you're a good journalist because I've been listening to your podcast and, and consuming what you've been creating and reporting on for a few years now. 
you don't want to make yourself a part of the story, but I, I want you to kind of extract yourself for a moment from all of this. And, and when you got home, when you finally had a chance to emotionally process the experience that you had just had visiting there, what what were the feelings that you were left with? Like, wh in, in what ways did this affect you? And what were your thoughts and what were your feelings um, after you had a chance to to really dwell on it? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, something I've often said about going to Israel over the years is that it, it's a place where the experience of, you know, Charles Taylor talks about living under the imminent frame where any thoughts of transcendence and spirituality and all that stuff, you kind of bump your your ceiling against them and you're trapped in this kind of secular mindset. Going to Israel, that always gets messed with because it, it's a hard place. Like the imminent frame kind of doesn't work there because the landscape and the history and the people you're surrounded by, they all think in terms of these bigger stories and uh, not all, but enough that that as a believer, it, it it's disorienting. And I would say that, that experience, um, this was this was even more intense and an even more intense encounter with that. I mean, maybe the you, you asked a second ago about surprise. Like maybe the biggest surprise was how often the Temple Mount and the Temple and the Third Temple and the Messiah and that kind of stuff kept coming up with people, um, whether they were whether they were Christians or or or, or Jews or um, or, or Muslims. Um, because again, it's like at the heart of this country and at the heart of a lot of this conflict is this, you know, this, this, um, this patch of land that's, that's smaller than a lot of high school football stadiums and is the most <laughs> important place in the world to two of the world's, you know, most, most significant religions. Um, so I think, I think for me, I, I came back feeling like, feeling connected to this this larger story in in new ways that was was a real gift in a lot of ways um but also felt like man it it, it felt like the thing that I want to steward through the storytelling that we're doing with the show uh to try to help others people connect to that to the level that they can Mike Cosper serves as the director of podcasting for Christianity Today where he hosts the weekly roundtable podcast, The Bulletin. In 2021, he produced and hosted The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, a serialized podcast telling the story of a Seattle megachurch's stunning success and collapse. His podcast series on his visit to Israel that we've been discussing today will appear in the Bulletin podcast feed from Christianity Today, and we'll put a link to that podcast feed in the show notes for this episode. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.